Hello and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. And welcome back. We've had about six weeks off of podcasts uh, through the summer. Um, haven't really been resting, been preparing for an album that is coming out on the 2nd of September, which will have already been, or it might even be the day that you're listening to this podcast. Um, and that is the what this whole episode is going to be about. Um, I am joined by Andy Pickering. Hi, Andy. Hello. Um, and we're going to talk about the recording of this album and how it all came to be and um, hopefully entice you to go away and listen to it. Um, so the story, uh, the album is called The Hootenanny Plays the Music of Ron Ryan. Um, and The Hootenanny is a band that I run up here uh, in the north of England, in Leeds. Um, although Andy's from Sheffield, <laughs> you can be an honorary uh, Leeds person for this. Um, and um, essentially, uh, Ron featured on the podcast last year. I did a three-part special about him. And his story is fascinating. He, his brother, Mick, um, was in the Dave Clark Five as their guitarist. And as a result of that, Ron became quite good friends with Dave Clark. And in a time where lots of bands were playing covers um, it, and the, the times were changing slightly and it, new material, original material was needed for bands to sort of stand out. Obviously, the same, this same thing happened with the Beatles um, and it was happening to the Dave Clark Five. And it just so happened that Ron was writing songs so Mick mentioned to Dave that his brother Ron was writing these songs and Ron submitted some to Dave uh, for consideration for the Dave Clark Five and they were accepted under the promise that Ron would then later on be paid royalties for his work. Um, and that never came to be. Um, if you're interested in more details of that story, you can go back and listen to those episodes. Um, but then after the podcast was recorded, Ron began to send me songs that he'd written in the, some of them in the sixties and some of them in the sort of interim period between now and the sixties, um, songs that no one else has really ever heard. They'd never been released by any major artists and never really been recorded. And to me, they just sounded like typical, well-written, polished sixties songs. And they had that feel about them, even though the production style of what he sent me, the demos, was not that at all. Um, so I took it upon myself to record them <laughs> in uh, in a way that I wanted to, but also the way that Ron described to me that the songs came to be in his mind's eye. He said he heard Aretha Franklin singing them with a gospel choir behind her. Um, and that's kind of how he pictured the songs as they came to life. So I decided to do my interpretation of that um, with this band, The Hootenanny. So I gathered some of the best musicians that I know and we made this album. So I'm here with Andy to talk about the, the making of this album. So if uh, essentially we should start at the beginning. So the, 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 the process of it was quite loose, <laughs> I, I would suggest. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I like to... I, I suppose with the, in a sort of producer sense of the word, I quite like, well, I like, how, how was, how would you describe the process of how we went about making the songs sound the way that they sounded from a performer point of view? So just to cl clarify, Andy played piano and organ on the record. Yes. Um, well, actually I'd heard the podcast, the original podcast we were on before 
uh, I'd even met you, I think. Oh, and then, then I did a session at your studio for my own music. And then you said, oh, I'm doing this album, you know, with Ron Ryan. I was like, oh, yeah, I'd listen to the podcast. That's, that's cool. And you just sent me these demos. And I was, uh, I was just, yeah, like, wasn't really sure um, what we were going to do at that stage in time. Um, I think it was because the demos were obviously, a lot of them were recorded maybe in the 80s or 90s and didn't sound anything like sort of how, you know, we wanted to sort of do it. But the songs were just great and we just knew like, you know, if we can get the right arrangements, then we could make it make it really special. But it was, you know, it was what, like 10, 15 songs, something like that, just demo, like complete, just, you know, demos. Some Ron was singing on, some he wasn't, you yeah. know. And um, I think did we had, you sent, is it Nick Freighty did some arranging? Yes, Nick Freighty, yeah. who I haven't had on the podcast, actually. I probably should get Nick. So Nick... Um, mm -hmm. He's a great artist in his own right. Um, he's a, I think I'd describe him as a, a chord person. <laughs> he's yeah. into reharmonizing stuff. So I got him on board to, I mean, essentially I, I was reimagining these songs. So I think I probably sent you three demos, three or four demos that I've yeah. made. And then um, just because I've got busy. Decided... Oh, that's right. Yeah. So sorry, I forgot to mention that you had actually done some some demos already going down the road of where we were going so that yeah. that was obviously like a big help in in learning the songs you know but then i, I would suppose so they yeah they were useful but then i i didn't like this sort of contrived nature of that where i i would sit down and and make a version of it and then that version would then be you know the sort i can't remember which specific song it is but one of the one of the songs it kind of came out very similar to my to my version yeah. of it and part of what i really wanted to achieve in this was the i kind of call it the the denmark street ver, uh, and motown sound combined yes <laughs> so i like absolutely. the idea of you guys all being like a of session musicians and i have a, a kind of idea of what i want in my mind's eye uh, what I want it to sound like this a particular song, but then yeah. put quite a bit of pressure on you guys to to just do it in the moment and not. Yeah, absolutely. It was so. It was uh, chord sheets originally, you know, with the basic structures, and then there was a song written at the top of each chord sheet, which was like a reference of we kind of want to try it in this style and the style of a lot of those references were like the polar opposite to what the demos were like. So a lot of imagination was needed. <laughs> and then there was two sessions at your studio then where we did all the songs. We recorded everything in two sessions and yeah. you did the stuff with the vocalists and the strings and stuff afterwards mm -hmm. separately. But basically, yeah, it was, it was just, it just happened so quickly. You know, we, we did what, six songs in a day each yeah. time something like that yeah that's right so um and you know to if anyone's spent any time recording in a studio like actually tracking live you know doing six songs in a day by today's standards is pretty damn good especially when no one knows the songs or even the <laughs> style that we're going to even record in yeah. i i just i like that 
it, to me, that's really exciting. I know from it was, doing, yeah. to do my own sessions that the when you once you kind of got to know a song, you get you only get a couple of chances to do it where the sort of subconscious reactions to what's going on happen. Yeah. So when we're playing in a room together, if we were to rehearse the song five or six times, then the all of a sudden you're doing things automatically because you know that they're coming. Whereas I I kind of wanted the feeling of of what people played to be reactionary to what was going on. Absolutely. And everybody involved this was such a, a high quality musician that I you know I knew that as long as we all knew the structure of what we were doing, that what people played would all it would always be really nice. And I wanted to get that yeah, initial yeah. reaction. Um, and I know. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember uh, when you you went in to do a piano take of because you played organ live and then we did yeah. a piano overdub on, on it and what you thought was the warm up and ended up actually being the take that was used <laughs> exactly yeah but that's that kind of highlights the point exactly that you played this you played this take and it we were all in the in sort of it's not really a control room but the live room yeah. slash control room of my studio kind of going like oh yeah it sounds amazing like he, he's playing amazingly well. <laughs> And then you were like, okay, I'm ready to do one now. Like, no, this <laughs> no, is that's it. it. That sounds great. That's it, come through. That's it, you're done. Yeah, oh, we were so yeah. happy about it. But that's that to me is the sound of the whole record is is us all reacting in the moment. fluffs on it but there's probably things that people no, didn't intend to come out happy, it's definitely happy accidents um yeah and that was definitely part of the charm and just uh yeah i mean straight off from listening back to what we were playing on the day we just kind of instantly just knew that was working there's one song uh particularly the the thought of never seeing you again um which it turns out, I mean, it's Ron's favourite from the album and it's one of my favourites too. And the, the way that that whole came, thing came about was a happy accident. So yeah. Nick, either Nick or me had had this idea of, so at first it was kind of a country um, a country ballad. I'll probably yeah. cut this episode and people can uh, hopefully will have heard a little snippet of it before we start talking about it. Um, but yeah, it was like a country train beat kind of song. Um, and then I decided that it was going to be a ballad uh so wrote a chord chart out for it and we played it in the room with me kind of mumbling along what i thought the melody was going to go like and then when the vocal session came about uh it turns out that we played the chords for twice as long as they should have done (laughs) (laughs) so louis came to sing on it and was kind of 
she essentially said, I don't know what to do because the words are not, you know, you're singing the melody at me and it doesn't fit. <laughs> and so then we had to improvise the, what became the hook of the song um, in the moment. So we sort of came up with it and it, it became the, became the whole thing of the song, yeah. that, this little bit that you'll have just heard or will be about to hear. And it's incredible. And that, that sums it all up for me. Like this one particular thing that came as an improvised, you know, what are we going to do about this? Right. Well, we just have to stretch the lyric out to fit across it. And we did it and it was amazing. And Louis's delivery of, on it was, uh, was unbelievable. Oh yeah. Every single, every single person involved brought their own flavor to the parts, which was already great. And then the vocals, like you still at that stage, you know, improving the songs and changing little bits, even though the backing tracks are recorded, it's like, well, we can't record that again. So this is going to have to work. And then, wow, yeah. like the vocals just unreal. Um, and that song, yeah, like I couldn't believe, you know, how different it is as well. You know, it's just, it's like almost like writing a, another song in a song, you know, but it's just <laughs> fantastic. Don't tell me. I had this this little Alice desk that um, I bought from the son of Bobby Graham, who has also he's he's died, but he we have a podcast featured about him. He played drums on a lot of the Dave Clark Five hits. Um, in fact, I think nearly all of them. Uh, him and I don't know if Clem Catini played on on any, but between him and Clem, I think that, that they did all of it. Dave Clark certainly didn't, and. Anyway, so I bought this this mixing desk off um, Bobby's son, um, which was an Alice eight two eight designed by Ted Fletcher, who's also been on the podcast. And um, so it all kind of felt in a really nice rounded way. <laughs> it yeah. felt like it, it it worked. So I'd sent it back to Ted and just got it sort of fixed up, so it was all working. And the plan was that you and me were going to essentially mix it through this little 828 to a two track tape machine um yeah. which started off as being my um revox uh, a77 and we also yeah. mixed some to your tape machine that you acquired i think Tascam. after we started mixing yeah tascam 32 uh, we were just had a few technical issues with yours so i luckily had just bought one that was wor- working well <laughs> so I, br- I brought that and um it we managed to finish the record with that I think we decided mine was a bit vibier, <laughs> but yeah. yours yours just sounded nice. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love a Revox, absolutely love it. But so um, it was interesting so, the difference in the machines. I have yeah, to say, absolutely. 
So for anyone that, that's listening that might not know who I am, and I, I'm basically a mad analog enthusiast. I'm a sort of like home prosumer studio, you know, with sort of minimal outboard, few tape machines, four track, and I record and make YouTube videos as well about recording all analog, uh, as well as being a songwriter and, and having released many records in this way. So when Joe came to me and says, I want to take this stuff that we've obviously recorded digitally, I want to then make it even more analog. So I've used a lot of the techniques that I use to sort of achieve that. And it was just like the icing on the cake, really. So once, um, you know, especially once the vocals and the strings were down, and you had this kind of like Phil Spector wall of sound sort of idea at one time. And you were like, um, you know, because I was always a bit conscious of like, oh, well, that, you know, that keyboard there. I mean, it's a bit this. And you'll be like, don't worry, it'll be mixed in. It'll be mixed in. It'll just sound <laughs> like a wall of sound. Don't worry about it. You know, so you got a spring reverb unit and I got a spring reverb unit. We got the same one. So we had two of those on the go. And the first point of call was to pre-record all the vocals through a tape delay um, and a spring reverb so that we didn't have to use up one of those while we were mixing. So we'd already recorded the vocal effects through the analog gear down. Do you want to just get geeky for a second about the actual process of that? Because yes. I, I mean, it was incredible. It, it's, the sound that came out of it was genuinely yeah. stunning. So what I will say before anything is that if, something's already good already well recorded well performed most important things before equipment is performance and song and all that sort of stuff so it already sounded good so it wasn't hard to make it sound good but using the basically sending um through a tube pull textile eq eq the vocals eq the bass out send that through a reverb and then compress the reverb but also delaying it on the tape head so that the reverb lasts even longer and then mixing that 100% wet down onto the track and then blending it with the dry vocal <clears throat> and we, we have um, a sort of wet and dry sort of knob on the actual unit where if you bring it more towards dry it becomes kind of slapback style because you, you're sort of getting rid of the echo and feeding more into the, the tape delay. So we just played with that and did whistled through all the tracks and got all the vocal sound so that that was finished. So then all we had to do was then send it through the Alice before the tape. So on, and... my, on, on the session file at that point, we had a dry reverb, a wet reverb that was generally, I think the general rule, I mean, we were doing it, just on instinct, but I think, it, you know, yeah. obviously for ballads, the reverb was a bit longer and depending on what the song yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, definitely um, made it as long as we possibly could. And and you compress the reverb as well. So with this, like a slow release, so you kind of get a lasts even longer, you know, just like the, the tricks of the 60s kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, so then we, because all the plugins and things that you were using were just, transparent things to just control things slightly there was no color added in the box but there isn't any need to like i think hybrid working is probably you know the best way absolutely because you just get the best of both worlds 
because you've got to think at the front end, you've already got the vocals recorded. Was it the Coles you did the vocals with? Yes. Yeah. So we've already got the great vintage vocal microphones, you know, and, and all the music was really well recorded. You've got, you know, your vintage drum sounds already. And it so was, all it, generally sounded quite, quite sixties yeah, beforehand. I think. Like even if you'd have just done a bounce out of, you know, <laughs> the computer straight away, just to listen back to what we'd done, it was already sounding pretty good. So these are yeah. just the little putting the analog sparkle on it at the end was kind of like perfect really. So yeah, we just sent it through the Alice and then tried to figure out how we could use two spring reverb units at the same time with the Alice, which one was pre fader and one was post fader. <laughs> it was a challenge. Some, and it, and it, it worked, you know, and, um, that Alice did something, you know, really special. We summed like, was it, was it eight channels? Yeah. So we summed everything down to eight channels. So some of the, we had like two mono groups and then three stereo groups. That's and right. yeah. And then, and yeah, so that, I mean, that desk sounded great. Absolutely. It did, didn't it? And it, it, I think we just sort of found, found a balance. It wasn't that, there wasn't I think much mixing to do at, no, you know, in sort of got, in the moment, was there? No, you didn't really have to touch the faders. It was, um, I just think there's, there's a lot to be said about analog summing the way that an analog console will add the sounds together to, you know, is, is just, it is different to how a computer adds the sounds together and, you can definitely hear it really um you know just for this kind of music it just worked great and then coming out onto a tape quarter inch tape some of it was recorded on the revox then we had some technical issues and then we did a revision with my tascam 32 for any of the bits where we had a few dropouts and things and mm -hmm. um and then it went off to mastering i think the the challenge well the, the the challenge for for me was you know at one stage i was really keen to do it to my little tascam four track four track yeah yeah that was the initial idea because i was so yeah. keen to just do it i mean like, that would have still sounded good it wouldn't have been as good in terms of high fineness i guess but like i say because everything already sounds good it's still going to sound good it would have sounded sounded a lot more lo-fi it would have sounded a lot more yeah it's finding that balance between it being cool. practical for for us to to record it but then also yeah. as live and um a, a, and sort of analog to an extent as, as we possibly can make it so not banging loads of plugins on it and making making the recording in as high quality as possible yeah then summing it to the desk and to the tape we've got the you know not only we've got the good amount of spring reverb running in real time on the mix uh, and stereo as well but you know you've got your room mics and things sounding good we've got a hallway mic i think you know so yes. we already got all those like real sounds you know everything was real there's no i think what i liked about it is the fact that there was no like artificial effects plugins running even though there's nothing wrong with using them it's just like Everything post-production really was just an analog sound. There's a light that shines, and it shines for you and me. With a flame 
So that sort of Motown idea of it being, I mean, essentially my studio is a flat. So yeah. the, I kind of thought this is going to be like, like Hitsville, like, you know, yeah. like the Motown house, you know, if they can make a house work, I can make a flat work. You know, the live room is oh, the yeah. living room of the flat. And I thought, well, you know, we're all playing together. Um, we're, we took a DI from the bass, for example, but there was a bass amp in the room that we didn't mic up um, that was providing spill. So we were all, yeah. and the, your your organ was mic'd through yeah. a little little amplifier, um, yeah. um, but don't think we took a direct in um, from your no, organ no. at all. It was all through the amp. Just really keen to get as much spill, which is why I think there was not an, any need for a huge amount of um, of uh, mixing on the faders because we were all quite um, attentive to to sort of dynamics whilst we were playing. Yeah, um, all, all that stuff at the front end is like the most important thing. You know, before you've even spoken about a preamp or a microphone or a compressor or anything, it's like <laughs> what you're actually playing and the person playing comes way before even the sound of what you're playing. You know, it's like um, so, and all that stuff was right, and that's that's why, as the process goes down the line, yeah, you start doing these fancy analog techniques and things, but you know, all the hard work's already done. It's that all that stuff at the end is just going to improve it. Yes. It's going to make. So, um, and then of course took it to uh, Ben Pike, who's rare tone mastering. He's also been on the podcast. It's proper little podcast family, yeah. uh, family recording <laughs> this. Um, Ben's got an insanely good analog setup with his oh, yeah. mastering. Um, and uh, I mean, if you go and check that episode out, if you want to hear more about Ben, um, and he was the only place I could I could picture sending it to, and yeah. um, I I. Just hearing hearing those first masters back at his place, um, gen- genuinely felt a little emotional. Sat there <laughs> listening yeah, back yeah. to it, just thinking what we'd achieved, and um, and like listening to, I think we were listening to "Thought Never Seen You Again," and just imagining, um, you know, Louis' vocal delivery is in- incredible, and I'm thinking about Ron's story and and all of it. I just, I mean, was so proud of of what we'd achieved, and to have finally put ron's songs um in a uh sort of genre that they they would have been back in the 60s i wanted it to sound like it was recorded in the 60s um and i you know i really hope i really hope that we've achieved that and and, you know i'm really hoping that you know ron i know ron has heard it and and really really loves it and i just want him to to be proud of of those songs and i think that you know hearing them back at ben's place really just sort of sum that up for me it was absolutely amazing um so yeah that i mean that kind of i think that that that's essentially the way we do it i mean i have to say i've got another another album i mean this will be the first of many hopefully um i've got certainly got another couple of ideas of things i want to do and I, i don't think there's much that we would do differently if we were to do it next time no it definitely works it was um the the slight the slight sort of issue with the reverb and one being pre and post made on this on the yeah, yeah. stereo sense <laughs> so it sort of just seemed to work itself out for some it reason did. i still can't figure out how it worked honestly well, that was the only slight thing that was a bit yeah. like i'm not sure about this but then the you know the, the sort of process of recording 
in the room together and, and everything all worked really well. It would be, I think we learned the lesson that, that I certainly learned was that you need to do a couple of passes of a mix. Um, once you've fixed it, you need to do a couple of passes through the tape machine because especially with my machine, you, you're certainly going to get dropouts and you could cut the dropouts between the different takes. Yeah. Um, you know, that that we, we ended up doing an extra, certainly one extra mix session because of mm -hmm. dropouts, essentially, didn't we? Yeah. Um, so I think that was the one lesson that I would take from the whole process. Um, but otherwise, I think the whole that I think the process works really well, and I'm I'm excited to to make more music this way. Yeah, unbelievable. And then you know that satisfying thing that after all this journey, all the story, all the everything that's in everything that's involved, everyone that's involved, that, and then you've got a vinyl in your hand, which is like the the dream of anyone. <laughs> well, that was yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought in my mind's eye when we set out on this, I thought this would be. The ultimate goal is obviously to have a 12 inch vinyl yeah, and then yeah. I know I didn't know how that was going to happen. I just knew we needed to make something really good and then I would deal with that part of it later on. And unfortunately, um, another another podcast person, Joe Kane, yeah. um, is signed to a label called Think Like a Key and um, I sent him the um, the mixes and he really liked them. So said he'd forward them on to Roger, the label head and, and Roger's based over in Miami, but I think he's from, um, from over Liverpool way originally. And um, he said he, he absolutely loved them. And, uh, we thought Ron's story was really interesting and he'd, he'd be really happy to, to put it out. So that's, that's exactly what's happening. So it's out on September 2nd, uh, which hopefully is the day that this podcast is going to be released. Um, and you can, if you visit, uh, my Instagram, which is all you need is drums. There's a link to the pre-order or the order at this time. And um, also the Hootenanny band camp. Um, if you just visit my Instagram, I'll put loads of stuff about it on there. And also I'll add a link to, um, to the band camp order on the shop of my website, all you need is drums.com. Um, or you can visit think like a key music, which I'm just going to double check that website. It's think like a key.com. Um, and you can order on there, um, whether you're in the US, the UK, wherever you are in the world, we have worldwide distribution. So it can be ordered at a reasonable price, where a reasonable price, wherever you are. And that's on 12 inch vinyl and CD and also download. I think we've covered everything. Yeah. fantastic. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of anything more to add, but yes, thank you so much for listening. Um, and I, uh, would implore you to please go and listen to the album. It's on all the streaming services and on Bandcamp, but please do support um, music that people make and um, go and check out Ron's story and the album where you can. It's the Hootenanny plays the music of Ron Ryan. Um, thank you, Andy. Thank you. Thank you.